Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Well, here we go. It's the start of yet another week on Political Rewind. I just looked up at the calendar I keep uh, up on the uh, wall of the office where I'm doing the show from and see that we are now starting week 39 of doing the show from uh, my remote office uh, near Emory University. And uh, and all of our panelists continue to join us by phone. And what I love about this is that you all seem to be just fine with the way the show has been unfolding, and I'm, I'm awfully happy about that. Um, obviously, we, before we really get started, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the vaccine, the coronavirus uh, today on the show. But I, I want to start with a couple of very important political items. And so I'm going to bring in my Monday and Friday partner initially for that, Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution who you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper and who oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. So, Jim, first of all, uh, let's talk about the state story. Uh, Today begins early voting for the January 5th two Senate runoffs. Um, We know that um, there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm for voting in this race, and we know that based on the fact that more than 1.2 million absentee mail-in ballots have been requested so far. That's behind the 1.3 million that were requested by this time before the November 3rd election. But the fact that we have that kind of extraordinary uh, mail-in request out there And as we watch what happens in early voting, I think we're going to see that there is a real appetite for being a part of this uh, uh, election, Jim. We haven't seen it in general elect, general elections, but in, in, in uh, sometimes in primary elections in Georgia, uh, you do have a dynamic where the runoff is 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 far more populated in terms of voters than the than the original election. I'm not sure that we're going to hit that, but it's still it's it still means we're we're going to have a lot of people uh, in a in a situation where there aren't. Uh, Probably, there in many counties there are not as many voting stations, uh, early voting stations as there were in November. Uh, a, a lot of it has to do simply with personnel because these people are exhausted. They've already gone through. They, I mean, they, they've already been through three presidential recounts. Yeah, um, and and uh, for those people who get absentee votes, there are fewer drop boxes in uh, some counties than there were for the general election as well. I saw that Newt Gingrich over the weekend tweeted that that was some sort of Democratic plot. Uh, I, I mean, he worries that it's a uh, that Republicans. Uh, let me say that more properly. His tweet says, "What's wrong with Republicans uh, if they are uh, uh, going to allow more Democrats to vote absentee? They should really limit the drop boxes." Doesn't Newt think that Republicans can vote absentee? It's what, what, I don't understand that tweet at all. No, no. Well, I will tell you what. It, it's it's and I've got it in the jolt today. Is is what it. <laughs> You're seeing this shift in, in, in the GOP vocabulary away from allegations of voter fraud and toward concern over what they're calling voter dilution. Uh, the more people vote, uh, the, 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 less, the, the more challenging it will be for Republicans is in their minds. 
Okay. Uh, the other big story, of course, is the Electoral College meets today in every state, and uh, Georgia, Georgia's electors will meet at the state capitol. They'll uh, vote their 16 votes for uh, Joe Biden. We don't expect there's anything that will alter that. This, of course, is a Democratic uh, slate of electors, uh, Stacey Abrams, I think, being the lead of that delegation, Jim. Yeah, Nikema Williams will be there, uh, and 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 our friend Calvin Smyre will be there, the state representative from Columbus, yeah. who I think is probably the only one in that 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 uh, sixteen uh, member delegation who uh, was uh, was uh, an an electoral college voter uh, in 1992 when Bill Clinton was was won Georgia. Exactly. Um, all right. So all of that we will watch unfold. We'll watch the Electoral College today. The runoff election we'll be talking about throughout the week. Um, but we w- want to turn our attention today to what I said at the very start of the show. It's a, a, an extraordinary milestone event. Uh, delivery of a vaccine uh, for COVID-19 is now on its way to uh, cities and states across the country. Um the uh, 11 Alive just reported that the first batch of uh, vaccines arrived at Hartsfield Jackson Airport uh, this morning. Uh, the state is not saying where that batch is going, how many doses are in it. But the point is that people are going to start getting shots for COVID-19. And it couldn't come a moment too soon. We now have today we will pass 300,000 deaths in the United States um, of COVID-19 or uh, related uh, uh, conditions. And uh, here in Georgia, the virus continues to spike as well. The the, um, Department of Public Health is reporting a a little bit differently right now. The seven-day confirmed average as of yesterday showed that there were 4,634 confirmed cases in the past week, but they're now adding uh, probable cases to their numbers, and they say between confirmed and probable COVID-19 determinations, 5,950 people uh, in the seven-day rolling average, which is really uh, uh, just stunning to think about. All right, with all that in mind, let's get to our terrific panel uh, today to talk about all of this. We're joined by uh, two uh, key figures in uh, public health and on university campuses in uh, Georgia. Dr. Ben Lopeman is an infectious disease epidemiologist and professor of epidemiology at Emory University. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Lopeman. Glad to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Bill. And Dr. Rodney Lynn is the interim dean of the Georgia State University School of Public Health. Dr. Lynn, it's very good to have you back on the show again. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Happy to be here. Um, And we're also joined by Dr. Karen Landman, who is uh, wears many hats. She is a journalist. She is a physician. She is an epidemiologist who uh, had a career at Centers for Disease Control and uh, now writes about health and medicine uh, as a freelancer for many uh, national publications. Thank you for being back, Karen. Well, Bill, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I'd like to start, if I may, um, by looking at what we think. Let's start with Georgia. Um, 
The Washington Post uh, last week took a look at all 50 states and what the expectation was of the number of doses of the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, that they were going to receive. Now, we're not quite sure of the providence of their numbers, but we're, I don't think we have much reason to think they don't have some basis for what they've uh, reported. They say that Georgia probably can expect a shipment of about 92,000 doses, um, and that's far short of the 557,000 in that first phase, uh, healthcare workers, nursing home residents, and workers uh, who were um, identified as needing to get the vaccine uh, first. So, Dr. Lopeman, tell us that small number, which we, we know will expand uh, relatively fast, um, is that more symbolic than anything else? Look, I think this clearly is a, a very important milestone that the first vaccines are arriving in Georgia. I mean, it's worth reflecting on how remarkable this is that less than a year ago, this virus emerged, and here we are in December, uh, ready to vaccinate the first individual. So it's clearly more than symbolic. Um, that said, we're not going to have enough vaccines to start with. There's clearly more need, more demand than there will be supply initially. And that's even thinking about the people in the highest priority, the so-called tier 1A groups. Um, for Georgia, that includes uh, health care workers, which is on the order of 400,000 individuals, as well as nursing home residents, which is on the order of, of let's say, 25,000 people. So that, that's something like 5% of the Georgia population is in that first tier. We won't have nearly that amount of vaccine before the end, end of the year. And I think it's also important to remember that this vaccine, this Pfizer vaccine, as well as the, the, the likely next approved vaccine from Moderna, both of those require two doses. So uh, however many doses we're receiving, you can half that in terms of the number of people that are going to be vaccinated in this first, this first tier. Uh, Dr. Lin, uh, again, quoting the Washington Post, when, when the vaccine, when the Moderna vaccine uh, wins approval, which is expected to happen, um, the, the combination of the Moderna vaccine, with which Emory University, of course, has had a role in helping develop, and uh, the Pfizer vaccine, uh, we could get about 470,000 doses uh, by the end of the year. And, of course, we have a population of 7 million people, Dr. Lin. Well, I mean, uh, we, we've known. In fact, we have uh, more for, than that, I should say. Yes, I mean, we've known for some time that the uh, there would be a greater need than uh, there is vaccine initially, and that it's going to take a number of months, uh, and that this will be a phased process. Uh, I think um, it, it's uh, most of us believe that by the, the summer, uh, most people will have had an opportunity to uh, receive the vaccine. Uh, but uh, it's going to be a phased approach uh, with uh, healthcare workers and uh, the most vulnerable uh, vaccinated first. Uh, Jim, I've gotten so used to thinking about the population of Georgia based on voters that I talk about 7 million, but in fact, the state has almost double that in population at this point. 
<laughs> right, right, right. Hey, uh, listen, uh, if if I could uh, uh, bring uh, Ms. Ms. Landman in, into this, uh, Doctor Landman into this, in, into this, <laughs> into into this conversation, the, what, I mean, uh, the, the the Pfizer vaccine, as as everybody has is kind of mentioned, is, is it requires these 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 uh, uh, very serious. Uh, 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 freezers. They, they, uh, you know, you, you need ar- Arctic uh, temperatures to, to store it, and and it seems to me that this puts, you know, uh, uh, rural Georgia at a very very distinct advantage. I mean, and 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 that's especially concerning given the fact that 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 COVID nineteen has really hit that area hard. Yeah, I think I think you, you mean, mean disadvantage. disadvantage. Yeah, disadvantage. Yeah, excuse me. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a key point here and, and one that has permeated um, health care for a long time in Georgia, but certainly extends to distributing this vaccine as well. Um, the, the vaccine, because it's, um, it, it's a different type of vaccine and the mRNA vaccines are notoriously unstable um, and require refrigeration at, like you said, a, a sub-freezer temperature that requires special freezers um, and special transport um, to, to get them to where they need to go. Once they are delivered um, or once they, they are defrosted from that very sub-zero temperature, they, um, I think they remain stable in a freezer for uh, around five days. But uh, so that's, it's still, when you think about the logistics involved in moving a vaccine around, yeah, it definitely places rural uh, Georgia and rural hospitals, rural healthcare at, at a disadvantage. But it's not, it's not just the freezing process. It's the whole application process you need to go through and the staffing process you need to go through in order to distribute the vaccine. Um, You know, larger hospital systems are just going to have more people able to navigate that system of requesting vaccines and um, and more people available to hire, uh, more money available to pay people as well to do the work of actually getting the vaccine into people's arms. And um, so the the smaller, less well-resourced, less well-staffed places in rural Georgia are just going to be at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to that piece of distribution. Uh, Dr. Lopeman and and Dr. Lynn, let me, Dr. Lopeman, please take a crack at this first. Um, We know that that Operation Warp Speed has, you know, on one hand, we can say how remarkable it is, as you basically indicated uh, when you first uh, made your first remarks, Dr. Lopeman. It's astonishing how quickly this uh, vaccine has been developed, and we've gone through all the appropriate trials to get it set for uh, the market. Um, But that doesn't mean that uh, the speed with which it's been developed is giving uh, people out there great Some people, in fact, according to some uh, surveys, a substantial percentage of people uh, confidence that they should take this vaccine when it's first offered to them, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's right. Um, but let me be very clear about this. These vaccines uh, have gone through the same safety and efficacy testing that any vaccine uh, would, would go through, right? They first started in these small trials to show that they're first safe and get larger, larger trials to show that people have an immune response. And finally, these are really large-scale ones that we've been hearing about over the last month showing how really remarkably effective these vaccines are. So although the, the, um, the timeline has been short, not because any, any steps have been skipped. So I think it's really important for people, for people to know that. Another important point is that no matter how big a study is, and these were really 
really large studies that include tens of thousands of people, it's important to continue the safety monitoring for vaccines, even when, they've, when they're on the market, when people are using them widely. And uh, it's going to be a challenge to do that on the scale that's required here. But CDC and our state health departments, they have those systems in place, and those are going to be employed to monitor the safety of these vaccines as, as they're rolled out. So I think that's, that's really important that people recognize that you know, no, no steps were skipped, and we're going to continue to monitor these vaccines to show that they're safe and effective. Um, should we be at all concerned, Dr. Lopeman, as long as the ball's in your court, about the, effect, the, the um, fact that several people in Great Britain who were, were inoculated developed, they had allergic reactions to it. Uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, news generated by those uh, at allergic reactions, and it, it, it contributed just a little bit to people's concerns about being inoculated. Yeah, look, so all, all vaccines... Um, can have some initial side effects, right? Swelling, redness, uh, can have fatigue even after after vaccination. Those kinds of things, they're, they're pretty typical, right? Um, what's going to be important is that we, there's going to be bumps in the road as these vaccines are rolled out and they're distributed so, so widely. I think it's going to be really important that we don't latch on to every individual news story Every, every person's uh, experience with this, what's important is that we trust the science. Like I said, the systems are in place to monitor the safety of the vaccines. Uh, these systems have been around for decades in the U.S. and other countries have their systems. And so we're going to you know, continue to look whether there are any, um, any, any side effects that haven't already been identified uh, with, with these vaccines. Dr. Lin, um, we know that a, a, a great deal of the skepticism, according to polling, suggests that in the African-American community, there may be a particular resistance to being vaccinated based on a history of concerns in the black community uh, about the medical treatment. I mean, going back for decades and decades to some uh, uh, horrifying stories uh, about how Africans, Ameri- African Americans were, were used in um, experimental um, medical uh, practices. So there is a particular challenge there, isn't there? Yeah, and, and Bill, I, I would make uh, some, some, I guess, wider comments about the population uh, writ large and then talk uh, more specifically about uh, African Americans and, and, and other communities of color. I think, you know, generally speaking, it's important to remember that people are, are reasonable and rational. Uh, they, uh, I think polls have really revealed uh, some concerns uh, among the population about uh, uh, the vaccine. I think that's improved in terms of people's confidence over time. But there's still a, um, you know, 30-plus percent um, uh, portion of the population that uh, has expressed uh, concern and that they may not take the vaccine. Uh, I think it's important to really understand that uh, there are a number of factors that uh, contribute to that. Uh, you mentioned historical um, uh, abuse and unethical uh, research. Uh, that's certainly one. I'll, I can say more about that in a moment. Uh, but certainly the rapid pace of development, Dr. Lopeman spoke about that. Uh, but the perception uh, may be there that corners were cut. Uh, we also have a lot of misinformation and an anti-vaccine movement in this country uh, that certainly doesn't help in this regard. And then finally, 
uh, politics uh, and its potential interference with science, uh, that has, uh, you know, not helped either. I mean, I think just last week, the chief of staff of the, uh, in the White House uh, indicated that if the FDA director did not approve the vaccine that day, he needed to be fired. I mean, this is the kind of thing that um, doesn't instill confidence in people that there's a separation between a, a scientific process and research and politics. Uh, so that I, I think that's, um, you know, broadly important for us to, to recognize and to meet uh, individuals and communities where they are in, in consuming this information and making decisions about um, their participation in, in, in being vaccinated. Um, in terms of responding to your question about African-Americans and, and other communities of color, um, you know, in October, uh, Dr. Ruben Warren, who directs the National Center for Bioethics and Research at Tuskegee, um, published a piece in the New England Journal uh, that was actually focused on uh, vaccine trials and the participation or lack thereof of uh, African-Americans. But I think some of the points that uh, he and his colleagues made uh, are, are relevant here. And one of the things that they indicated is that there's a, a real need to think about not uh, why the African-American community doesn't trust, um, you know, institutions and clinicians and, and, and this vaccine, but there's actually a need to think about trustworthiness. Uh, has there been a history uh, whereby clinicians, institutions, and government has shown themselves to be trustworthy? We, we know uh, historically that as it relates to risky uh, research, uh, vulnerable populations, uh, underrepresented minorities, but also elderly, soldiers, prisoners, uh, uh, the mentally disabled, and, and, and orphans have all um, you know, experience unethical uh, treatment. And so we need to really um, be sensitive to that. Uh, we need to ensure that we're taking the steps to earn uh, their trust and show uh, that uh, we're trustworthy. So I think um, there are things we can do in that regard and happy to talk about those further. Yeah, uh, I think it's really important uh, I appreciate everything that Dr. Lin is is saying, and I think uh, you know you mentioned that there's sort of an anti-vax movement that doesn't help um, with vaccine confidence issues. I think what we're seeing here is something very different. And there's you know your usual standard base of of anti-vaxxers out there who I think are just going to um, doubt vaccines no matter what kind of um, experiences uh, they have had, no matter what kind of um, science they see. But then, you know, I think a lot of the doubt and fear that we're seeing in other communities, including <laughs> communities of color, is based on what either what they've experienced in the healthcare system or what they're actually seeing unfold um, day to day here. They're seeing, um, you know, they, they have their own community histories uh, of really mistreatment by both public health and healthcare practitioners, which can result in a very rational response of really not trusting uh, the messages coming out of that community. Uh, and then, you know, all of us are seeing um, really politically driven moves among agencies that historically have uh, have been really insulated from that kind of process for the public good. So it's, you know, doubt in, in the vaccine is, um, is, is a, in many cases here, it is a rational response to some of what we're seeing in the environment. So I think it is on healthcare providers and on, on those of us in the in the public health system 
to counteract that with real transparency about what we know about the vaccine and its development, why it was fast. It was fast because it, it, it was a different scientific process than we've ever used to create a public, uh, publicly broadly distributed vaccine like this before. So this is exciting, different science and, um, and a really ramped up um, degree of funding and, um, and infrastructure to distribute this. So that's why this is fast, not because corners were cut. Um, and we also need to be really culturally sensitive in how we engage communities and in learning about the vaccine and making sure that there's not a disparity in, in culturally humble information going out there to communities, um, not just getting the vaccine to people. You know, Bill, on the bright side, uh, we do have a situation developing. We're not there yet and won't be there until January 20th. We have a, 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 a situation developing whereby you will have a sitting president who will be, uh, be who has already declared himself pro-science. But you also have a, a, an immediate ex-president who will no longer have any reason to, to cast doubt on on uh, on on the pandemic and will have every reason to endorse uh the vaccine that's coming out under his watch so that's at least at least we can we can we can count on uh on on that that flack is going to, that kind of flack is going to to uh be reduced but if i could and i don't i don't want to turn away from this topic too too clearly but i'm wondering if i could get our 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 our, our, the, our three uh uh, the p- three people here who know what they're talking about, it, just to widen the scope, we know we know the Pfizer vaccine has arrived and will be coming. The Mar- Moderna uh, vaccine will be we will be following that. But if if if, if one of you uh, maybe start start starting with you, Ben, if if you could take us through the 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 next year, what kind of vaccines are we going to be seeing, Jim? You yeah. have just asked a fabulous question. Wait, let me. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I got to get to a break. That is a great question to carry us over through our first break of the show. Uh, We've hit on some of the top line things that people are interested in, concerned about. Jim's question is a perfect one to start the next segment of the show. And we're going to drill down a little deeper on some of these issues as we go forward. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jim Galloway and I are surrounded by doctors on today's edition of Political Rewind. Uh, Dr. Karen Landman, Dr. Rodney Lynn, Dr. Ben Lopeman, all with us to talk about COVID-19 and the coronavirus. Um, Jim, if I can just paraphrase quickly the question that you asked right before the break, I think I'm correct in saying that you are asking for kind of an evaluation of where we head now that the vaccine is starting to be shipped, where we're going, what we should expect in the year ahead in terms of distribution, right? And that's basically what you're hoping right. to hear something about, right? Right, right. Okay, but, so but, 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 with but that we in have, mind... We, if, if, if I, but we also have several other vaccines in the work, and I'd, I'd like to, in the works, and I'd like to yeah. hear a little bit about those. Okay, Dr. Lopeman, what can you tell us? We got Moderna, we got Pfizer, both coming through the pipeline pretty quickly. Um, is AstraZeneca still in Who else is still in the picture? Yeah, this is, this is really important um thinking about the the medium to long term of what 
how vaccines are going to help the situation. And one related point I want to make to start with is that as exciting as these vaccines are, as effective as they appear, they're not going to help the millions of people who are currently infected. There are over 100,000 who are currently hospitalized. We have many months to come before vaccine really helps us to get the transmission, to get the pandemic under control in this country or, or globally. So I think it's important to keep, keep that in mind, what these vaccines can and can't do in our, in our response. That said, there are a number of other vaccines in the pipeline, and I'm, I'm optimistic uh, about those. We've seen, we've seen um, efficacy reports from one other uh, vaccine already. That's the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which also appears to be highly effective um, uh, as well. And, you know, that vaccine, in contrast to the two that are approved or about likely to soon be approved, the, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, those are, as we've mentioned already, those are these mRNA vaccines, which is kind of brand new technology. The other vaccines that are in the pipeline, which include the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, there's the Novavax vaccine, a number of other uh, vaccines that are by, manufactured by international global companies. Many of those are based on more traditional technologies. And so I think that's important too. They're going to produce products that um, we have distribution systems that are kind of more accustomed to getting these vaccines out, healthcare workers who are more used to use, distributing those kinds of vaccines. And there's even one vaccine that um, is moving ahead, which is a single dose vaccine as opposed to a vaccine that requires two doses. So it's going to be important that you know, we see these through the trials and have these other tools um, in, our, in, our, in, our, uh, in our arsenal, so to speak. So I'm a little, Dr. Lin and Karen, maybe you both could uh, uh, help me with this. Um, to the best of my knowledge, I, I assume there are more people who make flu vaccines in one company. I, I assume the flu vaccine comes from a number of providers. If that is correct, I know when I go to my local uh, Walgreens to get the flu vaccine every year, I don't have a choice of which company is giving me uh, the shot and and what it you know it's composed of. Is it a du- du- dual shot? The flu shot's a single shot. Are people going to start getting confused about whether the vaccine is coming from AstraZeneca down the road or whether it's coming from Pfizer? Will it will it make any difference at all as far as you can tell in the way we look upon our vaccination? I don't actually know. Doctor Lynn, are you to that. there? <laughs> you don't. Okay. Okay. But so I, I, um, mean, I suspect we'll learn a lot more about what differentiates the different vaccines as time goes by and people receive doses of them. Um, and I think that may that may end up driving some of the uh, changes in, in production and distribution if if those if there are big differences. Dr. Lynn, I think we lost you for a minute. I was asking about this notion of, you know, when I get a flu vaccine, I just get a flu shot. But all of a sudden I go to Walgreens and they're going to say, well, we happen to have the Pfizer in right now. Uh, Moderna's coming next week. It just just feels like I, I know that seems trivial. But on the other hand, if a population is a little concerned about getting vaccinated in the first place, we're not usually behind the curtain on who's manufacturing the vaccinations. This is true. Um, You know, I think uh, Dr. Lopeman earlier in the broadcast, um, you know, talked about that we'll be uh, doing additional uh, safety 
uh, observations of these vaccines and, you know, even what happened in uh, the UK with the Pfizer vaccine, there may be another vaccine that is uh, that does not cause that, that, that sort of reaction, even though it's a, a very... I think we keep uh, having a communications problem with uh, Dr. Lin. I apologize. Let's see, Sam, if we see if we can get him back, that'd be great. Um, uh, Karen, what are people putting in their arms? You and Dr. Lopeman have both referred to the ki- this new uh, frontier for vaccines that's been developed here. What exactly is this shot that uh, Th- Pfizer is uh, d- uh, distributing? What exactly is it and what does it do? I mean, if you want to think about it in um, in sort of metaphorical terms, what people are getting is basically um, uh, a recipe that their cells can use to make a protein that looks a lot like one of the outer spikes of the coronavirus that you know the COVID coronavirus. Um, so, and we have um, we have lots of these little recipes in our cells already. Um, they're kind of photocopies from the master recipe book that is your DNA. Um, but they're different in that once they're used, they're kind of balled up and thrown away and, and degraded. They're not, they're not integrated back into the um, original DNA, into that master recipe book. So, um, so when your body receives this DNA, this, I'm sorry, this mRNA, either from within uh, machinery within that cell or from this vaccine, um, it'll make the product that that recipe uh, instructs it to make, uh, then throw away the recipe, and then that product provokes your immune system into making soldiers, basically, that will fight off both that that tiny little protein that your body makes when it gets the vaccine and eventually uh, the actual COVID particle if you ever get infected with it. So that's, um, that's how that works. Um, Dr. Lopeman, as long as we're talking about that, I, we're starting to get some interesting questions from our uh, listeners. Um, uh, one of them is uh, a Twitter follower said, if someone gets exposed to COVID and the vaccine works and they don't get sick, could they, that person still transmit the disease? I think we don't know the answer to that definitively, right? That's something that the studies are going to have to show moving forward, correct? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It's a very important, very important question. So what, what do we know in terms of um, what the vaccines protect against? We know that they protect against uh, COVID disease, and we know they're probably even better against severe disease. So that's good. Those are good, those are good points. What we, what we don't know is whether the vaccines will, per, will also prevent transmission. Now, they can do that in two ways. Right? They can stop people from getting infected in the first place. And if you don't get infected, obviously, you can't transmit to anyone. We don't know yet if the vaccines will do that, but we should find that out soon. Uh, we heard at the FDA meetings that, um, that the companies are, are, are looking into that now. The, next, the other way that vaccines can prevent transmission is that, is that they can make you less infectious. If you get infected, maybe you don't have as bad symptoms. Maybe the virus replicates at a lower level. And again, we don't know that yet, um, but I think time, time will tell either by, through looking at the trials that have already been done or doing these studies once the vaccines get on the market, and we'll know how well the vaccine can also protect against transmission. Um, um, uh, Bill, do we have Dr. Lin back online? I don't think so. I, I think, think we're so. trying okay, to establish. Right. 
All right. Well, if, uh, uh, Dr. Landman, uh, if I could just – this is just out of, out of complete curiosity, of course. Uh, we've got a number of people who have, have contracted uh, COVID-19 and have survived, including the president of the United States. Do those people get the vaccine? Is, is, I mean, or, 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 or are, are their antibodies uh, considered strong enough to, to, to allow them to, 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 to allow us to move on to other people? Yeah, a great question. And, and the short answer is yes, they should get the vaccine. And um, the reason is that we don't really know what it means to have been exposed to COVID, to have survived COVID uh, when it comes to future ability to become sick from a repeat infection or to spread the infection after you are reinfected. So, you know, we see some case reports of people who we know have been reinfected, and it takes a lot of science and a lot of monitoring to determine that, so we don't have a ton of case reports. It's probably happening a lot more than we realize. But we just don't know um, how much protection you get from your original infected, from your, I'm sorry, your original infection. We also don't know for how long the vaccines are going to protect us. So a a lot of questions around um, what, you know, what one... um, set of vaccines or what one uh, symptomatic COVID infection really means for protection. So for that reason, you know, people who have been infected should be vaccinated um, again, or should be vaccinated. Dr. Lin, I'm sorry we were having some communications problems, but I'm really glad you're back with us. And I, I want to start with you on a question that I'd love to uh, have a, a, a larger conversation with everybody about. Um, we keep hearing about herd immunity and the vaccine. Uh, we are, uh, uh, you know, my uninformed uh, understanding of this is that some 65, perhaps 70 percent of people have to be vaccinated before herd immunity will actually take hold. I don't really quite know. I mean, I have this vague notion of what herd immunity means. I don't really quite know how it works. And if we don't get to 70 percent of people taking the vaccine, will that have an impact on whether the general population is protected against the virus? Yeah, uh, great question. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, uh, and then I'm going to kick it to uh, our epidemiologist that's on the call here with us. Um, but I will say <laughs> that, yes, you, I think you're, you're generally correct. Um, I would also add that, um, you know, what we're learning is that people that have been infected uh, with COVID-19 are likely to have uh, some immunity, and that immunity is likely to be uh, lasting. Uh, That's not, you know, 100% definitive, but uh, that's what uh, uh, the literature appears to be suggesting and what we're learning. So I think between the, the vaccine uh, and the numbers of individuals who have, uh, you know, already had exposure uh, to uh, to the virus, um, that you can, you know, count all of that uh, together as potentially um, getting us closer to the point where we have herd immunity. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, this this issue of herd immunity. The idea is that there will be enough people in the in the community in the population that are protected, that the virus kind of has a hard time finding a new person to infect. And it doesn't have to be everyone. It just means that, you know, one person becomes less likely to come into contact with a susceptible person if they're infected. And like Dr. Lynn said, there's two ways to get there. We can get there through natural immunity. In other words, through people getting infected. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why that's a, that's a 
not, not what we should be aiming for. I mean, for one, we know how how many people are getting sick, getting hospitalized and dying. And so clearly that's, that's not the preferred way to get to um, herd immunity. Also, despite everything we've suffered over the last nine months, only about maybe 10% of the U.S. population has been infected to this point. So to imagine us getting to 60, 70% would be horrific. Think of all the, the, the illness that would result. So vaccines are the best way to get us to herd immunity. And you're, you're, you're right, Bill. Um, the threshold that we need to get to for COVID is something on the order of 60, 70%. And that depends on how infectious the pathogen is from measles, which is one of the most, maybe the most infectious virus, we need to get about 90, 95% of the population vaccinated. For COVID, it's, it's, um, which is quite infectious still, but thankfully not that infectious. We're talking the order of 60, 70%, as you say. Uh, uh, if I could jump in, Bill. Uh, let me ask, uh, uh, bring in, and I'd like to bring all three of you all in, in on this, but how dependent uh, are we in the United States on uh, how effectively the vaccine is administra- uh, administrated, uh, administered throughout the rest of the world? I mean, I mean, you've got some tremendously poor countries in there. You've got some some tremendously undeveloped countries out there. Obviously, that they they would find uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines uh, very difficult. But it, it seems to me that this thing isn't over until we uh, un, until we 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 reach into those areas. Uh, Who wants ben, to grab that? Start. Sure. Yeah. I, mean, um, I think that. Go ahead, Doctor. Well, I, I was just going to say that, um, you know, the idea that, you know, once we get the vaccine, uh, we're, 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 you know, back to sort of the lives we had before, uh, I, I don't think we're, that, that's quite the case. Uh, I think there's going to be a good reason to continue um, with some of the practices uh, that we've uh, put in place in recent months. Um, you know, these vaccines aren't necessarily 100%. Uh, you, so you will continue to have people that are, are more susceptible that will want to and need to take precautions to keep themselves uh, safe. Um, you know, Jim, you make a good point. Um, the, the storage uh, required on these vaccines uh, is, uh, at least these, these first two, uh, is not something that's available, uh, you know, wide, in a widespread way across uh, some parts of the world. So. Uh, we certainly have some advantages here in the U.S. Uh, you know, the question about, you know, the proportion of the vaccines uh, that require less uh, intense refrigeration uh, and, and where those are distributed and how, I think that's a good question and something we're going to need to continue to look at. I've got to get to the final break of the show. Let's do that and we'll come back with more on Political Rewind. We are really only beginning to scratch the surface on the many, many aspects of the vaccine rollout. So I'm already going to take the liberty of inviting everyone on this panel back sometime in the weeks ahead to continue. And I hope you will join us because we're going to run out of time today. Um, I do want to point out something. You know, Galloway, we were very lucky. Bill Fagey. Uh, came and did our show right after he and Helene Gale 
co-chaired the National Academy of Medicine panel, which uh, came up with a plan for distribution of the vaccine, a phase for a four-phase plan for who gets it when. Um, I would, I, I really think people ought to listen to that show. You can find it on the GPB web, uh, Politics GPB's website, uh, gpb.org. Uh, po- uh, political, I'm sorry, PR, I think is the, the URL for that. But I want to share with you all something. We're going to post a link to a New York Times interactive feature where you can find out where you stand in the line by plugging in certain uh, factors about yourself. I learned that here in Georgia, I'm behind 38 million other people and behind 270,000 in my uh, county. And nationally, I'm behind 118.5 million. Did any of the rest of you uh, get a chance to look at where you stand? Uh, Ben Lopeman, did you look? And and then Rodney and Karen? Uh, I did, and I'm just I'm just about the last in line. Um, well, well, I do teach. I won't be in the classroom for um, for for until uh, fall 2021, another year now. And so, while teachers uh, have some priority, um, uh, I don't in that respect. And I think that, that that's appropriate that healthcare workers, nursing home residents, are at the front of the line. Yeah, I don't I don't begrudge that, Rodney. Yeah, for me, I'm I'm within I'm I'm near the back of the line. Uh, the, the it indicated I have 8.6 uh, million people in the state ahead of me. Uh, so that, that should tell you where my place is at, at the moment. And at the U.S. level, 270 million people ahead of me. So, but but I'm, I'm happy. With, I'm happy to have people uh, at higher risk go. You know, get this vaccine first. Absolutely. Absolutely. Karen? I'm also well toward the back, although I may start uh, doing some clinical work soon and and at that point probably would come a little bit closer to the front. But uh, I'm happy to uh, allow those who are much more intensely exposed to to risk and and to the virus itself to, to get in front of me. Yeah. And And you, Mr. Galloway? I've got I've got 233,000 people in Cobb County ahead of me and which I don't understand because you you're, you're you're further back than I am and you're 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 a little bit older than I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's not rub it in, pal. Um all right, look. Thank you for sharing that. I do I I wanted to uh, showcase that for a minute because I think if you go to that link you'll find it really fascinating to see where you stand in the line. And and Ben Lopen This really does emphasize what a long campaign we are in for here and all of the precautions that we need to continue taking. We can't suddenly say, great, the vaccine is here. Who needs masks? Who needs social distancing? This is going to be probably as long as seven, eight months to a year before we're out of the woods, really. Isn't that correct? No, I think that's, that's exactly right. You know, I, I sincerely hope and I'm confident that this national plan to distribute vaccine is going to be successful. And in doing so, I think it'll, it'll demonstrate what can be achieved with proper federal planning and action. But, you know, it does, I mean, a couple of points, it does sadden me to think, you know, how many lives could have been saved, um, how many family suffering could have been averted if we took decisive action, if we had federal leadership on mask wearing, on testing, contact tracing from the beginning, and we're going to have to do those things until vaccine is rolled out. 
And, and Karen, here's the other thing. There has been so much uh, questioning of how the federal government, how the Trump administration handled the virus to begin with, the, the messaging, the communication, the deferral to the states to come up with plans. One of the other things we have really are going to learn here, Karen, is whether the states across the country, and for our purposes, Georgia particularly, are capable of handling this incredibly complex operation. And, and there, let's hope we, we see good results, yes? Absolutely. You know, I, I, there is a plan. There's a draft plan available to the public on the on the Georgia DPH's website for how this vaccine will be rolled out. It's about 65 pages, and it's intense, and it, it outlines kind of how everything should work. But, you know, whether that's how things will work um, and whether the lessons learned from previous mass vaccination campaigns will actually be implemented is really a question. You know, we've seen... Some, some real issues with uh, with transparency around who's making the decisions um, related to Georgia's public health um, in over the course of this uh, pandemic. And I, I think it's reasonable to demand uh, some changes and some increased transparency and, and, and reassurance for folks that the decisions being made are not politically driven and, and are driven more by public health interests. Thank you for saying that. We really deserve transparency. Rodney, the other thing here as we start this is communication, messaging, advertising, marketing, everything possible to convince Georgians that this vaccine is something they absolutely should get. And that's a challenge, too. Yes, um, we've just uh, seen in the last day or two that the uh, federal uh, government is going to be rolling out a, a, a you know, social media and, and a multimedia campaign to promote uh, the vaccine. Um, one of the things that I, I saw there was that they were doing focus groups to refine their approach. And, you know, I was a little, um, you know, concerned that if, you know, we're just starting to do focus groups now, uh, that's problematic. We should have been doing that, um, you know, months ago to really understand what the barriers were for people in terms of taking this vaccine. So I think we, we you know, really have to listen to people, meet them where they are, and understand that there are issues uh, related to past practice uh, and to the, the current environment, some of the things I mentioned earlier, that give people real pause. And if we don't understand those things and really uh, have messaging that responds to them and work with uh, communities in a way that give them confidence, uh, then, you know, we're not going to have the uptake that we want to see. Jim, you get the last word. Well, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry about that because it was going to be a question, and that is, does Georgia have the money to actually distribute this vaccine in, a, in an efficient manner? Well, and Karen, we're out of time, but that's a huge concern because the federal government has not authorized enough money for states across the country to do what they need to do, uh, right? Yeah, I think that's going to be, as we've said before, a much bigger problem for the smaller hospital community within All right. the state. All right. <laughs> We'll watch that unfold. Dr. Karen Ladman, Dr. Riley Lynn, Dr. Ben Lopeman, and Jim Galloway, thank you for being here. We're way out of time for today's show. We'll be back again tomorrow. And in the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and yes, when it's your turn, take the darn vaccine. See you all. <laughs> <laughs>